Welcome to Bob Got a Microphone, the podcast that exists because I, Bob Tarantino, bought a microphone. There are a lot of interesting people out there, and these are some of their stories. If you've been paying attention to online discussions over the last decade or so, you'll know that controversies about freedom of expression are a perennial attention grabber. Professor Emmett McFarlane recently published Dilemmas of Free Expression, a collection of papers he edited and contributed to, and which presents a variety of perspectives examining ways to confront the challenging moral issues and policy problems inherent in controversies such as hate speech, far-right populism, campus speech debates, and censorship. In this wide-ranging discussion, we touch on matters including how the book came about, the extent to which those on university campuses face a chilling effect, and how we can productively think about and potentially overcome the challenges posed by expansive conceptions of free expression and competing values such as inclusion and harm reduction. All right, I'm Mick McFarlane. Welcome, how are you? I'm well, thanks for having me. No, thanks for being here. Um, let's dive right into the reason you're here. You're here because you have a new collection that you edited and contributed to called Dilemmas of Free Expression. Just came out. Can we talk a bit about what sort of the impetus or the sort of origin story for that collection is? Yeah, for sure. It's it's really twofold. One was my own dismay at the state of kind of contemporary debate around free speech and free expression in that it, it has certainly been caught up in the so-called culture wars and on social media. Free speech itself seems to become an object of polarization where you have, you know, some right-wing populist type personalities giving themselves the mantle of defenders of free speech, often disingenuously because they only seem to defend and advance a particular conception of free speech. And you have progressives, people on the left who speak often of free speech as, as if it has become a right-wing value. And that and and so the the polarization around free speech on one side and diversity and equality and equity on the other side, I have found deeply worrying. The state of discourse around free expression generally has become corrosive to the point where I worry about eroding this really fundamental democratic value and right. The other kind of impetus for the book from an academic perspective was that we are as a society facing a host of new and continuing challenges when it comes to free expression and and the internet and social media has become a key one both in terms of the technological and policy difficulties of regulating harmful expression whether that's hate speech or disinformation misinformation conspiracy theories false news this affects everything from our electoral integrity to our ability to combat the pandemic. And at the time, you know, I started thinking about bringing scholars together to write this book, we had kind of a clear set of issues that in some contexts we haven't really faced before because of the, the nature of technology and social media and anonymity, and some that have been somewhat perennial, but where public attitudes have shifted. So there's evidence that you know, younger generations are more willing to accept certain forms of censorship that in the 60s or even the 1980s would have been uh, unthinkable. And then there are particular contexts where this has all been more explosive. So the university campuses, uh, in particularly in North America, but um, in many de democracies, have become kind of sites of contestation as well. So there are a lot of really contemporary issues that I thought of volume 
could could address in a in a fairly robust way, but also hopefully uh, an enlightening and interesting way. Thanks. And so I'm curious about the sort of process of putting it together. I mean, did you populate it with people? Like, did you sort of pick, you know, people, one person who's kind of more skeptical about free speech protection, pair them up with a person who's sort of more robustly committed to it? Did you pick the topics and then reach out to people and say, hey, like, do you want to write on this topic? Or how did that all come together as a collection? Yeah, it's kind of a mix of what you're talking about. I certainly didn't aim for kind of a both sides type approach. I wasn't looking for kind of traditional million uh, libertarians and then and then kind of equity seekers who would advance a more skeptical view on all this. I was actually looking to bring together a group of people who were generally nuanced and thoughtful, who had relevant expertise in the different areas. And that quickly became apparent that this was not going to be an academic volume dominated by a single discipline of thought, right? So there are legal scholars, political scientists, there are philosophers, and I kind of culled from, largely from my own knowledge base uh, of people who I knew who wrote on different areas. Um, So, you know, it was very natural when I was thinking about the different topics um, and thought about the issue of, of compelled speech. Well, I know Leonid Sirota had blogged about this before and was, was a, a great scholar uh, to write about that. Um, when it came to writing about campus issues, getting in touch with Shannon Day, a philosopher uh, now at the University of Regina, she had been writing a lot about academic freedom and its relationship to free expression. And so I was culling from people who were active on some of these topics in the Canadian context over the, the last few years. And then others, you know, I kind of also kind of put out a bit of an open call and invited people to get in touch if they wanted to write something. And that's how, uh, you know, some great people like Carissa Mamathan, who ended up contributing a chapter on social media regulation kind of came out and that I knew how busy she was and, and was, was delighted when she got in touch to, to contribute. So it happened, you know, somewhat organically, but but very much kind of issue by issue, um, not really thinking too much about getting the strong free speech advocates or the the strong skeptics, but about getting people who would cut through some of the din and some of the simplistic and polarized discourse and really get into uh, how do we tackle these issues in a sensible fashion? What are the policy considerations at stake? What are the legal considerations at stake? And people I knew who would write in uh, both a very active and accessible style, but who wouldn't fall into the trap of of kind of the stereotypes we've seen in the debates that are often filled with red herrings and other fallacies. Nice. So I'm a lawyer uh, and I've always been, you know, I've been interested in, in debates around free expression for, you know, a long time, like going on 25 years now. Because I'm a lawyer, I feel like my kind of reading list is relatively constrained. I sort of read other lawyers. I read what the courts have to say. You know, you're a political scientist and, and there's other contributors to the book who are, are in other disciplines other than law. My own view is like, I think my my sort of reading list is a little bit impoverished, right? Like I think lawyers come to the table on the discussion of free expression with a bunch of priors, which are, are helpful in a lot of ways, but in, in some ways are a little constrained. Am I wrong about that? Like, what, what do you as a political scientist bring to the table that, say, a lawyer kind of misses in their, in their analysis? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to speak to myself individually. I, I've set out a career that is very, I think, explicitly interdisciplinary. You know, I, I model myself as not just an expert on Canadian politics or public policy, but also on constitutional law. And, and so I do think I, you know, personally bring that interdisciplinary perspective a bit to bear. But political science generally, um, I think, tend to focus more on how governments actually approach policymaking and some of the implementation challenges from more of a purely policy perspective. So I think the the lawyerly brain automatically starts thinking about both first the jurisprudence, but then, okay, what are the proportionality considerations when this inevitably gets to a section one type test when this is inevitably litigated, right? And in some ways, a lot of the problems that the book tackles, although they will inevitably, a lot of them end up before courts and end up in the context of a charter rights type discussion, a lot of the problems are much more fundamental than that, because almost regardless of what the courts might end up doing about particular laws or modes of regulation, governments are going to be faced with these pressing challenges that are actually, in some contexts, like openly and existentially threatening to democracy, right? The threats to electoral integrity and electoral regulation. You know, there's a great chapter by Aaron Crandall and Andrea Lawler on electoral regulation. These are big challenges that we need lawyers, but we also need philosophers, policymakers, decision makers, bureaucrats, uh, the chief electoral officer, people who people who care about democracy and, and you know journalists as well to care about and to be attentive to because the the problems are systemic we have a society that it you know it is quite plain that a, a large segment a, a discomforting segment of society is ill-equipped to distinguish reliable news sources from unreliable news sources right this is not a problem that that any one discipline is going to be able to tackle. And I think political scientists are well positioned to think about those linkages between the societal problems and what governmentality can do in a way that lawyers, a lot of lawyers might not because they are so so well grounded in jurisprudence, but not perhaps policy scholars or, or, or public opinion scholars or communications scholars, right? And that's true of any of us. As, as experts, we, we tend to be a little bit siloed, but some of us, you know, really try to keep our toes in multiple ponds. And that's true of some legal scholars as well, right? Um, there are increasingly, I find in the Canadian context, more and more legal scholars if not lawyers, are reading beyond the confines of law journals now. So one thing I, I particularly liked about your chapter and some of the other chapters is the empirical work that you're doing, right? Like people are bringing to the table quantitative analysis in a way that I think lawyers historically have completely ignored, right? And because like the, the conversation on free expression, certainly in the courts, but sort of in the legal community is, is I find kind of pitched in a register, which is pretty abstract. I think it's all kind of theoretical and we, we talk about certain conclusions as if they're self-evident without really being able to point to much 
in the way of data demonstrating that, oh, like there is, you know, this is in fact the harm or the benefit which is resulting, you know, from a particular law or from a particular intervention. Is that like, do you see that sort of happening more frequently as we move forward and, and continue this conversation and these debates? I do think so. And I think, you know, one of the big questions will be to what extent will this end up eventually influencing jurisprudential approaches um, and particularly the Oaks test. And so, you know, the in political science, for example, I think our our discipline has grown increasingly methodologically sophisticated in both the types of questions being answered and, and the variety, diversity of methodological approaches being brought to bear on them. And, and you know, like Jeffrey Sachs chapter really does an empirical deep dive into the way faculty members have been disciplined by universities across Canada. And, and he kind of takes the, it's a, it's a robust or at least systemic approach um, looking over a fixed period of time at how how often formal discipline is brought. Um, and that, you know, that helps cut through some of the rhetoric I was talking about earlier, where people just make claims about a campus speech crisis, that universities are no longer bastions of free expression, and they're just, they just kowtow to Marxist ideology or whatever <laughs> some people kind of like to say. Well, here's data, right? Here's the actual picture of what is happening on the ground. And that's that's a good antidote to some of the poor discourse we've seen. On the, you know, on the legal side, you know, Jamie Cameron and Richard Moon, both contributors to the book as well, have made the point in their past writings of the kind of impoverished section one analysis when it comes to free expression before the courts. The courts have been, I think, markedly deferential to some of the restrictions on free expression over the years. And for me, the best example, and I, I think I talk a little bit about it in the introduction, the best example is probably the the law that was was subsequently repealed, but it concerned the dissemination of election results in parts of the country where the polls had not closed. And the court's majority in, in I think it's the Bryan case, upholds the law, but with a very low threshold for any evidence that this was a problem, that it had harmful effects, uh, that it influenced anyone's vote or their likelihood to vote. No evidence was in the offing that this legislation actually served a, a substantial objective, let alone that it was proportional in, in, in sanctioning people who might have spread or disseminated election results ahead of time in, in certain regions. And that you kind of see that line through in a lot of 2B cases. And I wonder if, you know, as scholars, because, because judges have, at the very least, they, they exhibit a willingness to cite scholarship, usually legal scholarship in, in these big constitutional cases, I wonder if an increasingly empirical scholarship will, will begin to be more informative to litigation um, and maybe to outcomes down the road. But that's, that's something we'll have to wait to see, I guess. Yeah, well, I mean, here's hoping. I'd, I'd like to explore that a little bit more, the, the point you touched on there, and also when we sort of opened about university campuses as particular sites of contestation for free expression. I mean, to 
to follow Twitter, at least it seems like universities are, you know, essentially like a free fire zone when it comes to free expression in the sense that there's a, there's a kind of dominant clique might be the wrong word, but there's a dominant mindset, which is not, not necessarily opposed to free speech, but treats free speech as sort of a subordinate value. I mean, as somebody who's on campus and who's in that community, is that, I'm assuming that's kind of a little bit of a caricature of what's actually happening on university campuses. Yeah, I mean, in my view, a lot of the rhetoric around campus speech has become overblown. I do, I do personally, and indeed have written op-eds about some of the controversies and cases that have occurred in Canada and, and beyond. Um, and so I do find it worrying when we see university administrators deplatform or sanction speech. Um, I think it's something we need to be vigilant about protecting. But at the same time, if you follow some of the social media debate, you come to think that everyone is is cowering under this expressive chill of equity concerns or, or what have you, when that's simply not the case. Every day, thousands of students across this country are exposed to controversial issues and debates at universities. My courses, the courses I teach, whether it's constitutional law, uh, intro to Canadian politics, my rights and public policy seminar, all we do every class is talk about controversial issues from medical aid and dying to abortion to hate speech itself. And I have never had an issue. I have never had a student complain about anything I say provocatively or not to spur discussion. I've rarely, rarely encountered students saying anything derogatory or racist in class or to each other. And I really lean into these moral controversies because it's the sort of policy questions and rights issues that I, I find interesting and, and therefore that I teach. And my experience is not an outlier, right? It's in fact, these, these speech controversies that are the outlier, you know, two or three times a year, the National Post will spend a couple of weeks dissecting some speaking event that was called off. And we kind of translate that coverage into this idea that universities are are just rife with censorship. We were treating the outliers as the norm. And, and that's, that's my thinking on it. I think we should be vigilant about expression everywhere, but on university campuses, we, we need to fight kind of the knee-jerk public relations reaction that university administrators often have. And so instead of thinking about the principles they need to protect, they often worry about bad media coverage or lawsuits instead, and it leads to bad decision making. And sometimes decisions that do, I think, contravene free expression. But it's not that common. It's not a crisis. And in fact, if there were never controversies, it would that would be a bad sign, right? It would mean that, you, that universities really are boring, safe places where no, nothing, no interesting conversations are occurring. I think the, the fact of controversies kind of supports the idea that, that sometimes speech at universities pushes limits. In, yeah, in, no, in I, usually I, a healthy way. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think I'm I'm simpatico with that. I, I had a, a much more absolutist frame of mind when it came to free speech, like sort of 15, 20 years ago, where I was like, there, there's sort of an optimal state that we need to be 
striving for and like we can get there and now i'm a little more kind of complacent about it and in the sense that like it's always contingent and it's always contested and that's state is actually the proper state for it that like we're not there is no kind of end result here that we're going to end up at it's in that entire kind of debate and dialogue that we we really sort of see free speech and free expression kind of in action and it's a it's a misunderstanding to describe every single sort of action or or argument about free speech as somehow chipping away at the edifice. Like I think there there can be certainly situations where, you know, the government could implement some kind of rule or or you know government state actors could implement some kind of rule that is a a true kind of malignant attack on free speech but i mean we just don't see that or haven't seen that in canada at least and it's interesting to me you know the the way that the free speech debate has kind of evolved over let's say the last 10 years and i'd love to get your thoughts on this where I, you know, like 10, 12 years ago, there was sort of a, a lot of the debate, at least kind of in the in the national media was around kind of human rights tribunals, right? And then it sort of shifted into this sort of Jordan Peterson prompted panic about, you know, various things that were happening on campus. And now we seem to have morphed into a conversation about speech, specifically online, and particularly, as you alluded to earlier, with respect to its impacts on, on sort of the democratic process and the electoral process. Is that, am I right in sort of describing it that way? Or is that like, do you see a, a different kind of pattern or a different teleology to this conversation? I mean, I, I, I think, I mean, I think you're right in the kind of succession of things that we have taken notice of, but I, I think they're probably happening in parallel. So the, you know, the, the campus stuff is still with us where, you know, I'm, I'm not worried about what's really happening on the ground at universities at this point. What I'm worrying about are some of the attitudes around expression that have come out of this discourse, both surrounding the campus speech issues and and social media generally, right? And so what worries me are is the willingness for people to say, well, that's not free speech, right? This absolutist reaction to offensive speech or even hateful speech and simply say, well, that's not free speech. And at the university context, this is happening in a way where people sometimes say, well, you don't have free expression, you have academic freedom. And the, these are distinct things. So we shouldn't be talking about free expression at all. And it's true, academic freedom is distinct from free expression, but universities are communities. And many universities in Ontario are the size of small or medium-sized towns by themselves, right? So it's absolutely true that I don't have free speech in the classroom in that as an instructor, I have to stay on topic and at least be speaking to the material that my course is meant to be comprised of. And students don't have free speech in that I get to regulate class discussions. I get to decide when a student gets to speak and that these are all rational limits. But outside of the classroom, outside of our research and strict teaching activities, campuses are venues for expression because they are communities. And similarly, social media, is a bit of a quagmire because we have a federal government that is has intentions to try to regulate hate speech and, and possibly disinformation online. But it sounds like they're going to do that by basically requiring or licensing private social media companies to do all that work. The only way to do it is through automated decision-making. 
and algorithms that we know actually can in them in themselves produce systemically discriminatory responses. And so, you know, in Charisma Mathen's chapter in the book, she has this great line about like, even if these algorithms end up being 99.9999% accurate, given the sheer volume of Facebook posts, Twitter, Instagram posts, you're talking about thousands upon thousands daily of false negatives or false positives when it comes to something like identifying whether whether speech was hateful or whether something is intentionally misleading or false news. And I, I think I'm worried, I, sh- I shouldn't say I think, but I'm worried what we're going to see is legislation that simultaneously passes the buck to private entities to regulate in this, in this area, but also a host of unintended consequences flowing from this that may make the problems worse, not better. Right. One thing I struggle with, um, and, and this relates a little bit to my observation earlier about how, you know, I used to have this thought that there was an optimal sort of state of free expression, right? Like you, you a particular political community or polity could come up with and, and should come up with an arrangement of laws and norms which was ideal and anything which was sort of below that optimal point, like any suboptimal arrangement was kind of a failure in some sense. And frankly, you know, at the time I thought, well, okay, like probably the Americans are the closest to having kind of that optimal state. I've since come to appreciate that different countries and and different communities and different cultures can just, you know, for a variety of entirely justifiable reasons, end up at different positions on the spectrum in terms of what they're willing to countenance and what they're willing to sort of treat as valid expression or, or, you know, problematic expression. Where do we, because you referred to universities as communities, I'm just curious to get your take on where, like, what's the appropriate sort of level at which to have the conversation? Like, is it, should we be talking or worrying about free expression sort of at the level of the community or should it be at sort of the national level or or is it more global in light of how communication works these days, particularly with social media? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the fora we're talking about, right? There's no, I mean, there's no really coherent way that, even a national entity like Canada is going to be able to regulate speech on the internet when you can start to consider the jurisdictional issues and issues of anonymity. Canada can't sanction the Swedish kid who is spouting hate speech on Twitter. It can, it can, I guess, regulate Twitter to such a degree that it requires Twitter to remove that person's account, at least from the Canadian jurisdiction. Um, but I'm not sure how that far, how far that gets us. You know, I think, I think. The, the the setup to your question, you know, I partly agree, right? Like it, it kind of makes sense why Germany would have a law against Holocaust denial. Um, and maybe other countries don't really need a law given historical reasons. So that part of it makes sense. But, uh, you know, in some ways I do worry about allowing local communities or authorities to draw within the lines of the law within within particular countries. So my my complaint with universities, for example, is that many of these controversies concern hateful speech, not unlawful hate speech. 
And the reason there are controversies is because university administrators just cannot follow the law or they can't bring themselves just to stick to the law and say, look, if it's lawful speech, we have to allow it. Let's try to approach this like grownups. And there are other ways we can do to mitigate the harms from hateful speech that don't fall into this pattern of censorship or deplatforming. We can actually devote resources to targeted groups, ensure they don't suffer a silencing effect, ensure they within our community feel supported. Um, and I, I have a new paper that kind of has some policy prescriptions along these lines. But there's a disconnect also between the law and culture, right? So you cited the American approach and the First Amendment jurisprudence, I think, has a rationality to it and an attractiveness to it in that it really is geared towards imminent harmful effects and whether something is truly inciting of illegal activity rather than whether the words themselves are just reach a particular level of odiousness. And there's an attractiveness to that, but it hasn't translated into a free speech culture. And I say that because look at what's happening right now as state after state is banning the teaching of critical race theory. This is a phenomenon that really got going after our book was already in press. And so it, the particular attack on critical race theory is not reflected in our book. But I can't help but think of it as an ex as a perfect example of what happens when we do allow for censorship and that the, the, the people wielding the power of the censor are, are not actually always going to be supportive of the people most subject to harm in the hate speech context. And, and in the U.S. context, we see actually the people historical historically and contemporarily facing systemic oppression being targeted by the censors. And that's a cultural thing. None of, none of these laws that I've seen can possibly survive First Amendment challenges unless they face really uh, judges who are perhaps ill-suited Ill to the bench. But the, the, law, the fact that these laws are now so widespread and so vicious in their orientation speaks to me of an erosion of, of, of free speech culture. And there's, so there's a huge disconnect between the law and culture in, in the American context right now. That's partly a function of the political polarization we see and the rise of, of right-wing populism and Trumpism. And so even, even healthy laws, and, and I think a lot of people would say Canada kind of fits this happy medium where we have you know, robust protections for free expression, but we're not as absolutist about it as the Americans. We can have unintended consequences here. We have seen state power be turned against oppressed groups. In fact, that's often where state power is aimed. And so if we think increasingly drawing within the boundaries of what is currently lawful is the way to deal with some of these problems, we might be in for a nasty surprise in that regard. Yeah, I think one of the failings that, that lawyers are kind of saddled with always is not really appreciating the interrelationship between law and culture. Like I think lawyers are, we come sort of pre-equipped with this notion that like, oh, the solution to everything is law, right? Like if there's a problem, we have to, we need more law or we need to modify the existing law. And I just, there's obviously a relationship and, and there's a sort of dialogue between law and culture. Um, so I don't want to overstate the case, but I think we we misconstrue the importance of culture and, and the importance of, you know, ensuring 
a kind of vibrant and vital commitment to norms and sort of patterns of behavior and habits within the culture. And, and that, as you, I think, pointed out there, is going to be something that we have to contend with. This has been great. It is in terms of sort of ongoing or, or soon to be arising uh, debates or, or challenges, what are, you, what are you keeping an eye on in terms of free expression or, and, and what should people be keeping an eye on? Yeah, I mean, I think two things have struck me recently, and I mentioned the the, the federal legislation on hate speech. Um, there's going to be hopefully a vociferous debate about that, and and I, I hope a, a serious examination of some of the implementation challenges, as well as the potential for unintended consequences. I, I don't know. You know, it's possible they also pass a, a kind of toothless bill in that they they kind of pass the buck on to private entities and those entities either in good faith or not do what they can and it ends up having kind of minimal impact on our all our lives um, but at that point we're still facing the challenges of how much disinformation there is out there how much hate there is out there um, the other you know developments quite recent development that caught my eye was, of course, the Ward case recently rendered by the Supreme Court involving not defamation, not one of the, the hate speech laws, but about the concept of discrimination as speech. And we, we got this sharply divided court. And I, I have to admit, uh, you know, as awful as this comedian's comments were, I was relieved that the majority found the right side of this because the, the dissenting judges, I think, risk opening a bit of Pandora's box uh, by this idea of there being this other category, this broadly discriminatory speech category that, that people could be subject to, that it somehow, it doesn't, you know, it wasn't a hate speech case because it doesn't necessarily rise to that level. It wasn't a defamation case between private actors. It was this other nebulous thing. And that is, you know, the fact that so many judges actually were willing to countenance sanctioning someone for their, their broadly odious speech in that context was worrying. And so I, you know, I don't know what will come out of that. It was in some ways an unusual case for not falling within either of those other boxes somehow. But it, it says something that we might want to follow in terms of, uh, you know, it's, it's a little bit reflective of what I was commenting on earlier. Like, I think our courts have not done a very good job with, with 2B under the charter. And this was the fact that we got a split decision is a bit worrying in that regard. Okay, last question, then I promise I'll let you go, because I, I just want to pick up on what you described there a little bit, and also refer back to the title of your book. So the title of your book is Dilemmas of Free Expression. So a, a dilemma in the conventional sense is you have two options in front of you, both of which are have negative consequences, like the, it's a zero sum game, right? Like either whichever path you choose, there's going to be someone's going to lose. Are we at that point with respect to free expression? Like, do no matter what choices we make, is there going to be some net loss or is there a way to kind of cut the knot and come up with a solution where we can both sort of address potential harms and maximize expression? Or are we sort of perpetually going to be in the, on the horns of that dilemma? I, you know, on the one hand, I'll say, you know, I don't think there are any easy answers or perfect answers. But on the other hand, I actually, you know, in, the, for example, the hate speech context, I actually 
want us to start pushing back on the idea that it's simply a contest between free expression as a principle and equality or diversity as a value. And I think there are ways to enhance both in the hate speech context. You know, we talked earlier about the the messiness of the empirical reality. And, And we often talk about hate speech as someone utters a thing, it inspires more hate and harm, and that's the causal arrow. But where does that hate speech come from? The the fact is that there is hate out there. And to me, that's the problem. And in fact, some ways hate speech laws let us off the hook because we're not actually addressing the root of the problem. And I think there are ways to start addressing the root of the problem that are both not just protective of free expression, but are actually enhancing of equality and the values of diversity, as well as protective of expression. And, you know, in the, in the campus context, we see this when instead of deplatforming a controversial speaker, we put on events to actually boost the, the communities um, within campus that are targeted by some of that hateful speech where we devote resources to ensuring we're reducing barriers to representation in in communities. Um, My own university is engaging in cluster hiring for black faculty, for indigenous faculty. They're establishing a black studies program. They're creating a a center for black community members. Um, So they're actually putting, they're actually not just responding to specific incidents of controversial speakers or hate speech, but they're actually putting systemic resources into ensuring that targets of hate feel that sense of belonging. And I think that mitigates the extent to which hate speech can efface someone's human dignity, that it can, that it can affect their sense of attachment to the community, that it can impose a silencing effect on them. Um, I think there are more robust ways to actually try to counter the negative effects of hate speech rather than just turning some of these hate personalities into martyrs and making them famous. And that's kind of what we did with Jordan Peterson, right? Where Peterson's regarded by many people as a transphobe for his early statements, but I'm not sure if he doesn't get that first big round of media attention because he's been threatened with censorship and he gets a nasty letter from the university admin. I'm not sure he's famous at this point, if not for those early efforts at at deplatforming and censoring. And I think there are smarter and more systemic ways to try to confront these problems that don't artificially pit free expression against equality. Amazing. So there may yet be some possibility for optimism. Uh, That's fantastic. I really appreciate you taking the time and I will put a link in the show notes and to your book. And thanks so much for having the conversation and best of luck with the book. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed the episode. If you like this podcast, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, liking it, sharing it with your friends, or inflicting it on your enemies. If you're still listening, you're probably the only one who's doing so. The secret number is 42. To claim your no prize, send an email with the secret number in the subject line to bob at bobgotamicrophone.com. One, one, zero.